Our scripture today uh, comes from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. It's found on page 1838 on your pew Bibles. It says, You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and had been salted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery. Nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, nor from you or from anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. But we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to you or anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each other, with each of you, as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. For a long time, I thought passages like these were really boring. Paul is maybe the greatest Christian theologian of all time, except maybe Jesus. Um, and he's taking up all this space talking about really practical, logistical things about his own behavior. Last week, we just talked about, Paul talked about death being swallowed up by victory. Like, come on, Paul, why waste your time with this random information about the way you first met the Thessalonians when you could be writing something really profound? And Paul talks about this stuff really often, too. Is it just fluff? Is it like Paul had a 2,000-word minimum essay to write and just started throwing in random history lessons about stuff the people he was writing the letter to already knew? But recently, our church has been going through our prayer time before our Thursday Bible study, And we've been using a couple of passages from Paul's writings for it. And I noticed that Paul talks about really practical, logistical stuff a lot. We tend to highlight those soaring passages about Jesus as the culmination of all of creation a lot. And those are super important and cool. But Paul seems to be really obsessed with how we behave in simple, everyday life. And even talks about a lot of things like this passage, where it's all about stuff he's done in the past. It's apparently very important to him. And I learned that one of the reasons that was really important to Paul is that he was demonstrating that he has a different kind of message than the kind of message other people would have brought to the people he's writing to. The Thessalonians would have actually been used to a lot of people that were a lot like Paul. There were a bunch of traveling philosophers who would come to town kind of like a traveling circus. They would walk around giving all kinds of plagiarized philosophies talking about how great they are and how lucky everyone was to be in their presence. 
They'd ask for all kinds of handouts and money and get rich off the town. Then, when it first looked like everyone caught on to their act, they would skip town as fast as they could and come to the next one. Dio Chrysostom was one of these traveling philosophers who lived at the same time as Paul. And in one of his writings, he tries to convince the people of Alexandria that he's not like one of them. He's one of the good traveling philosophers. Here's what he says. Other philosophers post themselves at street corners, in alleyways, and at temple gates, pass round the hat for collections, and play upon the gullibility of lads and sailors and crowds of that sort, stringing together rough jokes and much tittle-tattle and that low joking that smacks of the marketplace. Accordingly, they achieve no good at all, but rather the worst possible harm, for they custom thoughtless people to deride philosophers in general, and even ones like me. Other philosophers, says Dio Chrysostom, try to make money off of the poor, stupid rabble. But he is a philosopher for a sophisticated audience like the good people of Alexandria. And he's not being manipulative at all. So that's one of the big reasons why Paul talks so much about how he behaved among the people. Paul says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul is saying that he's different from the traveling philosophers. All the other philosophers walk around saying exactly what everyone wants to hear, hoping that they'd be able to suck up to enough people to make a nice profit. But Paul and his followers were different. They had to suffer a lot for what they were preaching. They weren't ready to stip town the moment things got tough, but they made sacrifices to keep a relationship with the people they preached to. All these philosophers made sure they had a pretty nice appearance so that people would listen to them. But Paul survived being stoned and still kept preaching. I imagine he had plenty of stars, and he didn't exactly have the best appearance after that. All these philosophers were always trying to convince everyone that they were really important guys, and everyone was lucky to be around them. But Paul says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And this is the big one. Paul didn't collect money. That's a big deal. All the other philosophers were were after was money. That was it. They'd do anything they had to do to make money. And that meant lying or cheating or whatever. And it didn't matter because they'd stip town before anyone could call him on it. But Paul says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Okay, God is witness, but how do we know? Listen to verse 9. For you remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. When Paul came into town, he didn't immediately start asking for money so that he'd have a place to stay. No, Paul came to town and immediately started working. He was a tent maker, so he started, he started making tents and selling them. That way, nobody could accuse him of just being out for the money. Of course he wasn't. He didn't take any. But think about how much work that was for Paul. He had to support himself this whole time, which was absolutely a full-time job. On top of that, he had to travel all over the place on foot, which is exhausting on its own, and it also takes up a ton of time. 
He had to write these letters, one of which we're reading right now, which is magnificent. That probably was a lot of work. And if he wanted to send them places, he would have to pay for the paper, which was really not cheap back then. So that meant more tent making. Add it all up, and you can probably assume that Paul spent pretty much his entire life either preaching the gospel or feeding himself and getting supplies to preach the gospel. And that's not to mention the whole being thrown in jail and being stoned thing. With all that suffering, with all that work, Paul did not have an easy life. Say whatever you will, Paul was a true believer. How could you possibly explain Paul's life if he wasn't? So when Paul came into contact, when people came into contact with Paul as he preached the gospel, they came into contact with somebody completely different from what they've seen before. Here we had a true believer who bore the marks of the sacrifices he made for what he preached. Look, you might be able to think that what he's preaching is crazy. You might think this stuff about a Jewish guy who's also God being raised from the dead is insane. You might think that telling you to give up the worshiping the other gods is ridiculous. But you can't say that this Paul guy doesn't believe what he's preaching. Even more, you can't say that Paul doesn't offer a completely different kind of life. How else can you explain what he does on a daily basis? Last week, we talked about how the resurrection offers us a completely different kind of life. If you were at the sunrise service, we talked about how Jesus was the beginning of a new human race. He was a new Adam. The world we see as it is hopelessly damaged and full of death and evil and pain and weeping and suffering. But God promised a new heavens and a new earth where all that stuff wouldn't exist anymore. Instead, we would all live in peace together. Jesus' resurrected body was the very beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. And everyone who believes and has faith in him gets to share in the new heavens and new earth right now. What that means is that humans who get to share in the life of resurrection of Jesus, in other words, Christians, come from a completely new and different species of humans. But actually, they're the kind of humans that are beginning to look more and more like what humans were always meant to be. And the way that Paul interacts with the people he preaches to is exactly what you would expect from someone who has been given a new kind of life and a new kind of nature. He's completely different from the normal people the Thessalonians would have interacted with. It's like if a space alien came to Earth and started talking to them. And somehow, despite all appearances, including a disfigured face and eyes drooping from exhaustion, there's something mysteriously attractive about him. There's a sense that the kind of life that Paul lives is one that's better than the normal life of wake up, do something entertaining, or go to work, do something entertaining, go to sleep, and then wake up all over again. There's something profoundly meaningful about Paul's life, and he lives a life that's so profoundly different from ours. But there's a sense that he's bearing witness to a different kind of life altogether. And it's the kind of life that's exactly as life was always meant to be. It's the kind of life that gives itself up in love for others, Sacrificing everything for the good of those he loves, even when it means pain and shame and stoning. So this is why Paul spends so much time talking about things like what's in this passage, talking about how he's behaved in the past. Because his central claim is that in Jesus Christ, the new heavens and new earth have started. And they're right here, right now, for everyone to begin to see. Everyone who has faith in him is capable of beginning to get that new nature, 
one that looks exactly like how humans were always meant to be. And so, of course, Paul looks like a space alien to everyone else. It would be weird if he wasn't. He sacrifices everything every day. That's what that nature looks like. So what that means for Paul is that the content of his message is completely bound up with his conduct. For Paul, the conduct is the content of his message. He's preaching that a new kind of life is available. So it wouldn't make any sense at all if he just behaves in keeping with the old kind of life. If he doesn't show love in a way that's completely foreign to us, if he doesn't do whatever it takes for people that are almost completely strangers, frankly, if he doesn't look like a space alien, his message doesn't make any sense. He's got to take a bunch of people who never once knew each other and honestly have a lot of suspicion for one another, like Jews and Gentiles, and turn them into a family. Because if he doesn't, what new life are we even looking at? How is it any different from the old life? The same thing is true for us. When people come to our church, they should be able to see that, despite all of our differences, we're a true extended family. They should be able to see that this is a place where the new heavens and new earth have really started, and that we participate in the new life of the resurrected Jesus. If we don't look at least a little bit like space aliens, does our message really make sense? And that's where I think our church has a real advantage. Look at all the family language that Paul uses in this passage. In 12 verses, Paul goes from a brother to a father to a nursing mother and then back to a brother. And that's one of the promises of the new life that God gives to us. In our retreat a month ago, the main thing that everyone identified as one of the most important things about our church was that we felt like a family. We take care of each other and we stick with each other through the hard times. For us, the conduct is the content. We are a family to one another. And what we promise in our message is that being a part of the new, new life of the resurrected Jesus, anybody can be a part of that family and experience a changed life. It's an intimidating thing in our world where close, intimate relationships are so rare. And sometimes we can look like space aliens, but there's something beautifully attractive about it. It looks like a foretaste of the way humans were always meant to be. I think about it this way. Julius Caesar was a great general, but it wasn't because he had a really new, innovative tactic. Someone like Alexander the Great was successful because he took this really amazing new infantry formation called the Macedonian Phalanx, and he was able to march that phalanx around wherever he wanted and win every battle with it. It was like the skeleton key that worked in pretty much every situation they came across. Alexander's success came from having one new thing that he did really well that worked amazingly until someone could find a way to counter it, which nobody did during his lifetime. Julius Caesar's success actually came from his flexibility. He was really good at being able to look at his situation and he, that he sees his battlefield realistically and think about what his advantages were and what his disadvantages were. And he was really amazingly creative about making subtle moves that pressed his advantages and kept his disadvantages from being exploited. He might be totally outnumbered, but he'd find some advantage and made sure that the battle was fought on his own terms. And he would be playing his own game and not his enemies. If he didn't think that he could win a battle, he had no problem just not fighting it 
and trying to find some other place to fight. In every battle he fought, he always had the tactical advantage. He won a decisive battle against the Gauls by building a wall around them to keep them in, and then when Gallic reinforcements came, he built a second wall to keep them out. That kind of super genius stuff. Obviously, we don't want to fight wars like Caesar, but we can learn things from him. Sometimes a lot of churches think that they can be like Alexander the Great with the failings. They see some other church that has this great model that really works for them. They grow and they grow and they think that they're so much bigger. And then you think, man, we should be more like them. For us, we can think that we can be more like a place like McLean Bible Church. They have all kinds of amazing facilities. They have a famous pastor. They have great music. And they grow and they grow like crazy. They have the Macedonian failings. And we can be tempted to think that we just need to copy them and keep our own failings. But we just can't do that. We don't have the resources to do it, and we don't have the strengths for it. So, but we have our own strengths. In fact, our strengths come pretty much exactly where they might have weaknesses. And we can thank God that there are places like McLean Bible Church that have all kinds of people coming to Christ and getting bitter and bitter and attracting new kinds of people. But what we can do is look at our advantages and disadvantages and try to press our advantages and cover our disadvantages. We may not be able to play their game, but we can play our game. And I really think the biggest asset we have is each other. We have a family here, and that's an amazing thing. Our church will probably never be able to offer flashy light shows and a concert-like atmosphere. But what we can offer is ourselves. That's why I think that this message is so important for our congregation. For, up, for us, perhaps more than anyone, the conduct is the content of our message. If we want people to come to our church, we have to be a family and invite people to the family. It'll be because when people come here, they will feel so amazingly loved. It won't be because we have a killer preacher or smoke machines or light shows or professional music, although we kind of already do have that. It'll be because <laughs> it'll be because when people come here, they are loved and they fit in. And that might just be harder work, because it's up to us all the time to have a certain kind of behavior, which reflects a different kind of kingdom entering into the world. And that's exactly what we celebrated last week at Easter. It won't be about small stuff, like me saying the right words, or about playing the right music the right way, or even about having the right kind of outreach activities, even though all that stuff is totally important. It'll be about all of us showing each other and showing the world a different way of being human where every fellow Christian is truly a brother and a sister, and nothing can get in the way of that. We're going to show that there's a new life here, and it will probably make us look like space aliens like Paul. We're going to be a real family in a place where there's a lot of rich go-getter types who have a hard time keeping an intimate family. Because that's our game. That's playing the game on our terms. That's a plan that covers our disadvantages and exploits our strengths. It's not going to be about grabbing people to come hear the preaching and then hear the music and go home. As important as that is, it's going to be about bring us bringing the family to the world. As much as I love people to come hear my sermons, I'd much rather someone come and experience the love of Christ by meeting all of you. I'd rather they come here and think, man, these people are, more, are kind of look like space aliens, but there's something mysteriously attractive about them. I wonder how they came to live like that. Whatever the case, I want to be a part of it.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you rose from the dead victorious over death and evil. And in doing so, you created a new kind of life for us, which can sometimes be completely foreign to the world. Help us together to live out that new kind of life, and in doing so, show the gospel to everyone we meet. In your name we pray. Amen.